0: Well, I imagine uh, if you're like everybody else, uh, Easter decorations are put away or nearly put away by now. We've experienced the blessing of everybody putting away their decorations and their candy here at Hillcrest. Just just buckets of candy, Easter candy, uh, was brought into the church on Monday, and we just did our best to eat all of it. But, you know, it's kind of like, there it goes, Uh, Easter's over with, and it is this incredible celebration virtually all over the world. And as people put away the decorations and they put away the candy, it's very easy for us to just say, well, there it went, and and it's uh, common for people to put away faith. It was something we did. It's not something that really day-to-day, week-to-week, year-to-year engages with who we are as people. In fact, in our culture these days, there is such a pushback on having too much faith or really any significant faith at all. Uh, There is a sense that Christianity is really a crutch, and if you need it, uh, I'm all for it, but I, I don't necessarily need it. It's just kind of that crutch for people who are weak and who are in need. Now, you can say all kinds of responses to that, but Paul had one here that is important for us to look at this morning. Paul says that faith actually is the opposite of a person uh, who is weak and needy uh, and, and, and uh, just can't get along without it. Faith is actually something that is an invitation to a life of freedom a culture that says to be religious is to be entrapped in all of this religious re- ritual and obligation. And Paul says, not the faith we're talking about. While the world might think a person of faith is trapped by faith, Paul says genuine faith actually is an invitation to freedom like no one has ever experienced before. So rather than one thinking that the problem is that, cr- that people are too free and have to be less free, God would say, Paul would say, that people aren't free enough. What does it mean to be absolutely free? Paul has been walking through pieces of that. We get to the core element of what that is about when we get to chapter three here. Have you seen that commercial for V8? It's a picture of a trainer and there's this guy on an exercise ball and he's doing crunches and she's interviewing him and asking if he's been running and he says, yes, he has. And then she asks, have you been eating your vegetables every day? And he says, well, when I can. And you know what she does next? She bops him in the head, right? She just bops him right in the head. And she's basically saying, how could you be so foolish? What we see in chapter 3 is more than a head bop, actually, but it is kind of that sense. How could you be so foolish? In fact, in the Phillips translation, (laughs) this is what it says. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic. Now, I could have titled this sermon this morning, Don't Be an Idiot, but that word actually was banned in my family. We couldn't use that word, but Paul uses that, that sense of, 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 of anger and frustration. How could you be such an idiot? In fact, he goes on in verse 1 and he says it's like you've been bewitched. And this is just not a word that's a, a common word in the language. It's actually a, It's most likely a reference point to the lies of the evil one, Satan. John talks about his, his, uh, his intentions in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, that Satan is a deceiver. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And it's possible for us to be deceived by him as well. And God, God, God pays attention. As Paul is paying attention to this in life of the Galatians, you say, what could be wrong with a little bit of guilt? What could be wrong with a little bit of legalism? I and mean, if it keeps a person on the right track, isn't that just kind of okay? I mean, let's just actually... Have a little more of that. God says, absolutely not. And this is what Paul has understood about what grace is about. So that he says to the Galatians, you must not be that idiotic. It has to be grace and grace alone. It has to be faith. God pays attention to things that will destroy us. And God wants you and me this morning to pay attention to this. Because to not understand the core of faith is to be destroyed, to be dismantled, to be shaken, to live a life that's not free. And so Paul takes the time here to describe what faith is like. This is the one central thing. He begins talking about faith, and he uses the word in chapter 2, verse 16, where we read these words, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith and faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He talks about faith again in verse 20, and then we get into chapter three, which we've read, and we hear about believe, 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 and faith and faith and faith. Clearly that's the subject matter here. Paul says, I want you to understand actually and precisely what faith is, because faith is what makes people free. And it is so easy to be misguided. These Galatians, they were religious people. I mean, you, you really can't criticize them for not wanting to follow God. They absolutely wanted it for their life. They had sacrificed for it, but they still didn't experience the freedom that God intended for us to have. It is for freedom that you have been set free, his word says. So, what are the core elements of faith, at least that we see here, and are worthy of us taking some time to look at? Well, let's look at several of them. And the first is this faith is Christ crucified. That's the core of what faith is. And we saw that in chapter 2, verse 16. It continues on here. You foolish Galatians, he says in verse 1, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. In other words, he's asking this. When I was with you, how did I speak about Jesus? What was the portrait I gave you? And there are all sorts of wonderful things that Jesus said and Jesus did. But the picture... He says, the picture I left you with was this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's at the core of what this is all about. And it's interesting here in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the original language, the word as crucified here actually is in the perfect tense, not the past tense, which would be logical to assume. You remember he was cru- crucified way, way back then, but he's talking about crucifixion in the perfect tense, meaning it has relevance today, not merely sp- uh, historical um, uh, uh, understanding. It is not a general instruction regarding what happened And and it did happen. He was crucified, but he takes the verb tense. So we'll know that this is a proclamation of its enduring reality. Christ is crucified. Well, wait, wait. He, He was? No. Christ is crucified. There is an enduring reality and impact of that that will last throughout time. Christ's work was completed on the cross, but the impact of it, what accomplished is this. The benefits of his resurrection are forever fresh, they're forever relevant, and they're forever available. Christ is crucified. There it is. It's available. The impact of that is available to you today, to the folks in my neighborhood, to my family, to my kids. Christ is crucified. And it is fresh, and it is relevant, and it's the most central thing for them to understand when they have any idea of what faith is about. Christ is crucified. Christ is crucified. The gospel is not good advice to people, but good news about Jesus Christ. He is crucified. The gospel is not an invitation to do anything but a declaration of what God has done. Christ crucified. The gospel is not a demand, but an offer. Christ crucified. In fact, we get to verse 13, and he's still talking about it in chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Christ is crucified. Faith is Christ crucified. Now, there's another dimension of this that leads us to a life that's filled with freedom. And it is that faith has supernatural realities. Faith is Christ crucified. Faith has supernatural realities. That there actually is a supernatural dimension to what happens. It is not just simply a creed that I adopt for my life. I put it on the wall. And I, and I put a nail through it. I put it on the fridge. It's not just simply a creed that I believe in. It's actually the import, importation of the Holy Spirit into my life and in yours. It is a supernatural, it has supernatural realities. It changes us supernaturally. And we see that in Paul's, uh, uh, these questions that he asks. Look in verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? <laughs> He's talking about faith. What is Faith. Faith is Christ crucified. Faith is the reception of the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit? There it is again in verse 3. Do you live by means of the Spirit? It's not only that you had it when you came to faith, but you have it, and it's a part of your life today. And then when we get to verse 5, do you experience miracles? Do you experience what cannot be explained apart from God's Spirit? Is that happening in your life? Are there things happening in your life that there's no explanation for except for the reality of the Spirit of the living God? Is that true? Because that's faith. It is a supernatural thing. We are spiritual beings made to be inhabited by the Spirit of the living God. And when he inhabits our lives, it changes us in ways that can't be explained any other way. Now, Paul's going to carry this on. We get into chapter later chapter three and, and chapter four, and you'll see what the character of the spirit filled life looks like. But at its core we have to understand this about faith. It's not just simply the adoption of some creed. It's actually the gift of God's Spirit. This was, counter, this, this was completely revolutionary uh, in Paul's age. And, and, and we know this was written before the Mishnah was compiled. It's the codification in the 2nd century A.D. of Jewish customs and traditions. And he's talking to people, um, um, deeply embracing Jewish customs and traditions. And we get some sense of what that was like even in the Mishnah. In fact, in the Mishnah, it says, again, this is in 2nd uh, century A.D., Uh, This is what it says. Rabbi Phineas Benjar says, heedfulness leads to cleanliness and cleanliness leads to purity. You were wondering why that wasn't a Bible verse and where it came from, right? Cleanliness is next to godliness, right? And you say, boy, that's my favorite scripture verse. That's great, but you know what? It's not even in the scriptures. Uh, But there it is. It's, it's It's a sense of what was in religious thought. So let me start over again. Heedfulness leads to cleanliness and cleanliness leads to purity. And purity leads to separatism. And separatism leads to holiness. And holiness leads to humility. And humility leads to shunning of sin. And shunning of sin leads to saintliness. And saintliness leads to the Holy Spirit. Wow. Takes that long? I don't think I'll ever get there. And Paul says, boom, faith Holy Spirit, that's how it happens. That's what takes place. Demonstrations of the Spirit's presence came before they were even taught the law or tried to live by its requirements. Did you realize that? That when you came to faith in Christ, you had within you everything you need for a life marked by transformation that can only be explained by the supernatural engagement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's it. You know, in our world, there are all these kinds of things that we can't do until we reach a certain age. You can't drive until you're 16 or 14 or whatever the law says. My kids are past that now. I don't know anymore. You can't drive until you're 16. Guess what? You got the Holy Spirit day one. On the, on the day of your birth to faith, you have at your disposal every aspect of the transformational power of the Living God in your life. What does that look like? I just want to tell you a, a quick story. Some of you heard this story before, but maybe you can tell it uh, to instead. I, I was working on staff with a campus ministry organization. There was a young man who I had the privilege of introducing to Jesus. He didn't understand faith. Uh, He was running a pretty wild life and, and disheartened by all of the ramifications and results of it. And he decided to give his life to Christ. And we prayed together and he says, this is so cool. This is brand new to me. And I said, Bruce, let's just get together now and so you can understand just the dimensions of what faith looks like. And so we were using a little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's really a pretty cool thing. It talks about life as faith as kind of this allegory where you walk into a house and these various rooms in the house. And at the end of the story, the person gives the whole house to Jesus. But sequentially, through the house, there are these different places. And, and I was meeting Bruce in his dorm room, a couple of other guys in the dorm room. And um, when I set, went into the dorm room and uh, we were doing this Bible study together, all over the walls there were pictures that were absolutely demeaning to women. You know, it's kind of like walking into the dorm room and avert your eyes. I mean, it was just, it was everywhere. And um, I decided not to say anything about that. Um, you know, the law, this is what it says, Bruce. And I just decided, well, we'll go through this study. And we came to the week where we talked about the reading room, you know, kind of what you expose your eyes to and the impact it has. And I thought, this is it. This is just going to be as clear as day to Bruce. And um, I walked in, and I said, Bruce, what, what, did you, what, what do you think this means? What is this, do you think this is saying to you? And he offered some, in my view, pathetic response. And it was... Bruce, would you just look around? I mean, that's the application to this. And there was just a sense inside of me where God was saying, no, Mark, I want you to trust the Holy Spirit. And and if this person has actually come to faith in Jesus Christ, God's going to be at work. And so I didn't say anything. I just said, great, that's great, Bruce, and I'll see you next week. Next week, I walked into his dorm room and all of the pictures were gone. And Bruce says to me, guess what happened? The what? (laughs) And he said, I was sitting in my computer, and I looked up at the wall behind me, and I thought to myself, I don't want to have a thing to do with that. And he said, there were some other guys in the room, and I tore it off the wall, and it says, does anybody want this? Now, that wasn't what I necessarily thought would be a good application, but you see what was happening in his heart? The Holy Spirit was saying to Bruce, Bruce, I've got something better for you. I've actually got freedom for you. That's what I have. That's my intention. Break free by the Spirit given freely. That's what faith is. Faith is Christ crucified Faith is supernatural presence of God. And so this is why Paul says several times, cultivate the role of the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. He's there. He's in your life. Give him room. Have conversations. Listen to his voice. Because this is what the life looks like. And it leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. There's a third aspect of faith, and that is that faith is this. It is undeserved credit. We read in verse 6, So also Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's not like he got a free credit card, and then he just has to make sure that he pays the monthly bills on it. That's not the kind of credit it's talking about. It's talking about credits, that there, and there's nothing to be paid. That's what credit is talking about here. And you can see just uh, Paul's frustration with their perspective, this question in verse two. um, Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? What was it? Did you actually earn it somehow? Were you obedient enough? Did Did you achieve enough favor before God to get it or did you just believe it? And then he goes on to say, and what about your life in faith? You started out embracing belief and, 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 and God's Spirit was present there, and now you think that suddenly you've got to take over and you've got to engineer everything? That it goes from belief to obligation that quickly once you become a Christian? He says, this is crazy. Verse 5, he gets about, and the miracles, did they happen? Do they happen in your life because you abide by the laws or because you believe? You see, it's faith, 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 faith. Faith is undeserved credit. And then he does a really cool thing with all of these Jews that he's speaking to. He quotes Abraham. Now, think about this. They were thinking about Moses. Moses was their hero, Moses brought in the law. And so they were all about the Moses element of what it means to be religious. And he says, you know what? We're going to go back further than that. In fact, we're going to go centuries further back than Moses. And let's just talk about Abraham for a little bit. Paul goes back to Genesis 15, and he talks about God's interaction with Abraham. And Abraham was a person of faith, he says, before the law was even introduced. Abraham didn't even have the law to abide by. So why are you bringing it in now? That's like, in in, in verse 17, that's like 430 years later. Before there was even a thing called law, Abraham was a man of faith. Why? Because it's undeserved credit. Does Abraham get credit for abiding by the law? does anybody? No. It's a question, well, should, should we be a little bit more Jewish? No. We should be human. That's all that's required, that we just be human and choose to believe. And we become, it says in verse 7, children of Abraham not because of our spiritual descent, but because of spiritual progeny. All those who share his faith, they're the ones that are people of faith. So while this interest in the law and all of the, uh, all of the elements of the, of the Jewish law, they're helpful, we'll talk about them in a couple of weeks, uh, and the value that there is in, in the law, but all of that interest just pales in comparison to this one thing. Christ is crucified. Faith is the Holy Spirit residing in your life, and it's absolutely undeserved, but you get it as credit anyway. That's what we're talking about. Faith is credited as righteousness. What does it look like? Verse 13, Christ hangs on the tree and is cursed in the place of people who are in no way deserving of it. Christ is cursed in the place of people who are in no way deserving of it. He redeems us, it says. He buys us back. We contribute nothing. This is something we cannot do that is done for us. Elsewhere, Paul says, we were dead in transgressions and sin. Have you ever seen a dead man revive himself? No. We cannot do this, and yet it is done for us. So here's my encouragement to you. Let's not rewrite history. Don't go back to the place where you expressed your first first expression of faith in Christ and say that somehow you deserved it. There was nothing about us, everything about him. Don't expect others to deserve it, and don't live like we need to keep this whole thing going. It will be grace, 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 grace. Every gift of substance that is given to us comes not because of what you did, but because of who he is, And what he's done. And so then we come to the fourth piece of this. And it is this. That faith is a fork in the road. If Christ is crucified, I can live a life of faith. Faith means to cast my life on the faithfulness of God. And I decide if I'm going to trust in God's faithfulness. Or if I'm going to trust in my efforts. The law says do this. The gospel says Christ has done it all. The law requires human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and calls us to obey. The gospel brings promises and bids us to believe. Pick one. And, and, and you can only pick one because they're mutually exclusive choices. One is somehow, way about me, and the other is only about him. One leads to freedom. And that's why Paul says, don't be an idiot. There is one path to freedom. We can so easily go right to the longing we have to be faithful. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. But, you know, I mean, who doesn't want to say, I want to be a faithful person. At the end of my life, I want people to see something noble in the way I lived. But, you know, those are aspirations that God wants us to have only in a secondary way. What he wants us to have is the aspiration to live into a gift and to live with the freedom that that gives. More than anything else, I want my kids, when my life is over, not to say, boy, my dad was so faithful. I want them to say, oh, his God was so faithful. I want them to see God. And that will only happen if I've seen him. Absolutely, entirely who He is. What His Holy Spirit does in my life and what happens in me when I live with this sense, I'm free. I'm free. Now, typically, you come to this point in the sermon and there's supposed to be a takeaway And I don't have one. I don't have anything for you to do. No action point. This is it. Is it possible for us simply to be? Is it possible for us to embrace the reality of who we are simply because we believed? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of this gift and for the opportunity for us to live into something that is so freeing to us. God, I pray that you'd help us to live a life of worship that is filled with admiration for you and empty of obligation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.